Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Scanlon Center School for Mental Health Educator Wellness Podcast. Welcome back. I'm your host, Carrie Vogelji Sang, where we meet to talk about all things educator wellness. This season, we are focusing on our eight dimensions of wellness um, and really leaning into how we care for ourselves to care for others. And tonight, we have a special guest, Dr. Craig Sawchuk. I made sure I practiced that name. I wanted to make sure I was saying that correctly for this for this podcast. But um, Craig is joining us tonight to talk to us about environmental wellness, which I was just sharing with him is actually um, one of my favorite dimensions of wellness to talk about. Um, mostly because I'm really quite neurotic about how I keep my space, both <laughs> in my office on campus and here at home. So um, I was teasing him that this was going to be some kind of therapy session for for me in, in unpacking why I'm so neurotic about the way I keep <laughs> my own personal space. <laughs> but hopefully it's more than that for everyone else. So as I said, we're going to talk about environmental wellness today, which <clears throat> really encompasses how we care for our environments that we live in and that we work in. And that includes organization of our environment, cleanliness of our environment. It also includes our relationship with the outdoors. And it also, um, lately, people who study wellness have been also exploring what safety means in this dimension of wellness and the feeling of, of safety and security that we get in our environment as well. And that's part of our environmental wellness. So we're going to talk more about all of those things with our expert guest today. Um, he comes to us from the Mayo Clinic, and I'm going to read a little bit of a bio about him. Dr. Swachek has published over 70 articles focused on behavioral and mental health. One area of focus that relates to what we will be discussing this evening is his development of models to evaluate patient outcomes when receiving evidence-based care for anxiety and depression. Dr. Swachek has also examined and spoken about the impact of our environmental, our environment, uh, what, how our, that our environment has our, on our mental health or how our environment impacts our mental health. So mm -hmm. welcome, Dr. Craig Sachek. Great. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you uh, very much for inviting me and good shout out to our neighbors to the south in, in Iowa. I'm up here in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, and uh, one of my current uh, psychology fellows um, uh, trained at the University of Iowa. Ah. So good shout out you know, to folks down there. You have produced some great folks. Yeah, I'm so happy that you were able to join us. I was watching some other videos and I think even another podcast maybe that you had done before. And it, the stuff that you were talking about was really fascinating to me. And I hope that other educators will find it helpful to them as well. And even thinking about how they can talk about some of this information that we're going to unpack tonight with their students and their classrooms, um, I think it would be, it's going to be really really, really interesting. So yeah, and hopefully we can conquer two birds with one stone in terms of, you know, talk about some, you know, ways of looking at this and, and ideas of, of how we can manage it going forward and treating your neuroticism at the same time. So we got our work cut out for us for the podcast. Okay. Today. We're on the same page now. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what we're using the session for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so actually, sit back and buckle in, everybody. Yeah, everybody buckle up. This is going to yeah. be a good one. I actually think it would be really hilarious to have my close, like, family and friends in this room right now with us because they would they would tell you so much about how yep. how I organize my environment in in ways that they think are just ridiculous. But 
Again, we can work on that. There's some adaptive value to it, but as we'll probably talk in a little bit, at what point does it become too much of a good thing? Yeah, and and then, yeah, exactly. Well, well I'm sure we'll talk a little yeah. bit more about it. Okay, let's actually start, though. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables a little bit. Let's right. talk about you. Okay. <laughs> I want to just know a little bit about, like, how you got into this. Where did this, where did this start? Where, where, how did your research, like, go down this path? In, in exploring um, things related to environmental wellness and how do you use this to help people that you work with in, in various ways in your life? Right, right. So um, so a little bit about uh, my background, uh, as some folks may have already picked up on uh, some of the nuances that I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm originally from Vancouver, you know, British Columbia. And as uh, time has gone along, I've just always been super interested in the human condition. And when I did my undergraduate training at the University of British Columbia uh, in Vancouver, um, I majored in psychology. And, and for folks that major in psychology, we're usually involved in you know, doing research and other things and got connected um, with um, with a lab who needed research assistance in fear and anxiety. And as, as kind of like a, a young college kid, it's like, that sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Learned a ton from my mentor at the time and really got passionate about not only how do we evaluate anxiety, but then what are like some evidence-based treatments for that? And then that helped with my, um, uh, it just like going off to graduate school and in graduate school, I went to the most logical of places for somebody from Vancouver, British Columbia. I went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Totally um, makes sense. Exactly. I was, I was just, I was definitely going to guess that. <laughs> yeah. T- talk about a, an environment that may not necessarily be as conducive for a Canadian, like tomato soup, humidity and everything. It was, a, <laughs> yeah. it was, um, not particularly bearable. However, I had a great mentor and really um, started to learn a lot more about um, evidence-based treatments for anxiety. And then as um, you know, folks find if, if, if they're um, in psychology, it's a little bit of a witness relocation program with our training and other things and, and spent several years at the University of Washington in Seattle um, who really um, had, have done some groundbreaking work in um, models of, of treatment of depression in primary care. So how do we move mental health treatments into the primary care setting? And okay. my mentor that I was working with at the time um, did the same thing with anxiety disorders. And that's actually what ultimately brought me to Mayo Clinic. So okay. as a clinical psychologist, I work actually 100% of the time right here in primary care. So it's the delivery of mental health services in primary care where patients come. So our goal with all the research that we've been doing is looking at how can we offer evidence-based treatments for anxiety, depression, and other common you know, mental health-related difficulties and behavioral health difficulties that show up in, in primary care? And how can we help promote those outcomes. So we've done a lot of work in there, not only with with primary care, family medicine, but also our pediatric colleagues as well. Okay. Okay, So how often does a person's environment come into play when you're working with a patient? Yeah, always, 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 (laughs) you know, and in this place, and this is really an important role, I think that as um, mental health folks, we come into the mix because there's the person, right? So we think about um, maybe vulnerability and strengths with with an individual person. We can think of their genetics, kind of personality style, 
kind of coping style as well too, and other health conditions they may be managing, but that interacts with the environment. Um, and and again, you know, the environments vary. They play a big role in kind of upregulating or downregulating, you know, an individual. They can, uh, the environment can provide facilitators you know, for coping and can yeah. provide resources in all honesty for coping. And then also the environment, unfortunately, can be built in a way where there's a lack of resource or it disproportionately impacts, you know, parts of our population, make it much, much more difficult of dealing with the environment. And any of us, you know, on this on this podcast, every so often in our life, whether it be like at work or at school or in our neighborhood or well, sometimes our family, we come across a toxic individual and it only takes one person in our environment to really, you know, kind of shake us up. So it's actually, it's really, really important when we're meeting with folks clinically on a day in and day out basis is really pay attention to the role that the environment is playing, not only in um, maybe causing or triggering their distress, but also how's the environment playing in a way that can actually be leveraged to help them with their coping sure. overall. Sure. So that makes sense. So, <clears throat> so this is my question. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody coming to you and they're saying they have, you know, let's say, you know, and pretty intense anxiety mm -hmm. or depression and, and you're talking to them and you're realizing, and maybe they're even realizing, or maybe they even know right off the bat that the, their professional environment that they're going in or that, that they're going to every day or that the, and that they're working in is creating some serious challenges for them in terms of like really striking, stirring up some really complicated feelings, some stress that's super unhealthy. What kind of advice do you give to those people when mm -hmm. they're in a system that seems to be quite unhealthy for them? Right. And, and this is where it's like really understanding again, how that system impacts them. Okay. So we think of, um, we move to a variety of environments in a given day. Um, and if we think about all of us to a greater or lesser extent, we're always dealing with stressful things. Um, right. and, and stress isn't always a bad thing. You know, there's mm -hmm. ways that stress can help get us up and get us motivated um, and other things. But there's really two factors that, that I chat with patients about that determine how much stuff around us and our environment really kind of gets to us. One is predictability and the other is controllability. But that kind of falls on a, on a continuum or a quadrant of things ranging from being predictable to unpredictable, controllable to uncontrollable. And when things are more predictable, we can see them coming and they're more controllable, like we feel like we've got the time, the resources, the wherewithal to deal with it. We can usually handle that and we can usually yeah. roll with that pretty good. <clears throat> it's when things start to slip into those other quadrants where either things kind of catch us off guard, they're the curveballs, they're more unpredictable, we didn't expect them to happen, those things hit us harder. And then when things are uncontrollable, you know, when yeah. things are being done to us rather than with us, or we don't have the time, the resource, the wherewithal, or it's like, quote unquote, bad fit, you know, in the mm -hmm. environment, those things actually hit us harder too. But this is where we see, you know, other parts of us, like as individuals, personality wise, some people are like totally cool with being caught off guard, as long as they yeah. can do something about it. And there's some people that honestly can't be caught off guard by anything. And then likewise, you know, um, some people seemingly dispositionally have this magical line in their mind, hey, this is what I can control. and This is what I can't. They can yeah. seemingly let things go. And then there's other people's like, oh, you know, it just gets yeah. me. So it's actually really, really important when we're really understanding the context for each individual, 
what role does the environment play? Because that will have big implications for what we're able to do treatment-wise. So this is where it, it can get really, really um, idiosyncratic or unique to that individual because sometimes there's opportunities to say, hey, there may be ways that we can learn to improve that sense of predictability or controllability in, in the environment. There may be ways to change how we're engaging in the environment, yeah. setting things up differently. But then there's also, you know, to be fair, sometimes they're in a toxic environment. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to work on setting boundaries or there's this concept of functional avoidance. You know, maybe mm -hmm. this isn't healthy for you to be around. So we need to talk about that. So again, it really depends upon the individual. There's not a one size that fits all approach. Okay. So what about, okay, this is the thing. This is one of my big questions. All right. What you're just, well, I think you already answered it kind of, but like, I really, I really feel like you're not giving me the answer that I want. So I'm going to ask it again. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to build suspense, right? <laughs> okay. So when you're talking about, which this makes total sense to me. So yeah. like the predictability and the controllability mm -hmm. of the environment. And like, if you, when you were, when you were talking specifically about how, you know, um, if you're unable to predict or things kind of like, you know, come blindside you. Is that what that's called? Yeah, that's the mm -hmm. right word, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, okay, I feel like sometimes probably the reason why I am so controlling over my environment and the way it's organized and like I have this cleaning routine on the mm -hmm. weekends and I have yep. this grocery shopping routine. My menus are planned a week in advance. I have a chalkboard in my dining room with a menu plan for that week. Mm -hmm. I lay out my clothes in a certain way every night, my running clothes and then my work clothes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about, I have a very structured, very clean environment. Yeah. And people criticize this, criticize me all the time about this, about how it's the messy people that are messing with you, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No. They don't like, <laughs> they do not like this about me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm wondering for people like me, mm -hmm. maybe what we're doing is we're like trying to overcompensate mm -hmm. because we like internally know that like if I can control this and predict all of these mm -hmm. other things in my day, that the things that I feel like I don't have control over right. or that might surprise me, I feel like I can manage it better knowing that I'm still in control of my exercise routine. I'm still in control of the way my clothes were laid out. Right. Very <laughs> like, much so. I feel like that is probably the function of that behavior. <laughs> yeah. And this, and this is where we're getting. Now we're starting to get deep, Carrie. This is awesome. I know. Um, but it, it, it's actually like the last statement that you mentioned is super important. Like what function does it serve? And, and not to sound like overly dry or clinical, but every single behavior serves a function. So we, we think about, um, and I'm going to take a bit of a, a step back here, um, all of these things are on a continuum. You know, there are some folks on one end of the continuum where they're hyper-organized, kind of the neat freak, um, kind of minimalistic, um, and they just like to have things just so. Um, and then you kind of move into this normal distribution where you have, you know, people that kind of flex a lot, you know, yeah. having some organization is, is good and they go through rounds, but they also, you know life takes over and and they have competing demands and things get a little bit you know cluttered and then you get in the continuum on the other side where you start to get into more of the pack rat you know type of thing and then on the more extreme end um 
hoarding, you know, mm-hmm. uh, disorder, which would actually be your kryptonite, uh, what oh, it sounds yeah, like. Um, mm-hmm. So, but but that's really important to, to kind of pay attention to those individual differences. It kind of falls on a, a continuum. And just like a lot of traits and characteristics, mm-hmm. we, we bias towards one side of the continuum or other, and we show some flexibility, but it serves a function. So exactly what, what you're describing, like when things are a lot more organized, um, what function does it serve for people? You're right. It enhances predictability. It also enhances a sense of efficiency. So we think of like cognitive efficiency. Like I don't have to like sit there and go, um, huh, what, what do I want to wear? Or where, where is this again? You know, so there's a lot of efficiencies that actually really get built with that. Um, and it is one of those ways that kind of maps on to a general like predisposition towards you know, it's not that I'm controlling, but it's more like I like to have that sense of predictability and yeah. controllability. So it can function really, really well in that in that context. Um, now, and again, the same thing can be said when we jump to the other side of the continuum, you know, sure. when people just have that clutter around them, it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, a type of thing. And, and they may have like a really cluttered area, but they seemingly have this mental map where they know everything is, <laughs> or they're like, Ah, I'll figure it out once I get there, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's just like, this is what makes people really interesting. You've got this continuum, but it's really important what you mentioned is what function does it serve? But as something I mentioned a little bit earlier on, at what point does it become too much of a good thing? Mm-hmm. So when people start transitioning out into an environment, so I really like in my personal space, so the macro and or micro environments that you're talking about, like the places that we own our territory, like my home or my office, um, when I step outside of that and I kind of start to interact with spaces that are maybe on the other side of the continuum, honestly, it's sometimes at a neurobiologic level, we start to feel uncomfortable. Yes. You know, it can be like, oh, you know, this is just like, mm, I just want to fix this or <laughs> you want to go. And honestly, sometimes it, 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 we get that feeling and it's at a very automatic biologic level. I always try to think about at what point of does it become too much of a good thing uh-huh. in which it starts to cause us problems in day-to-day living and what point in time does it start to cause like impairments like a time suck we're spending so sure. much time trying to organize or we're um so buried in our in our clutter that we're not able to take care of other things you know in our life that's where once we get to the extremes and we run into inflexibility that's where we can um start to run into issues that might be good to work on. So I'm hearing there could be room for improvement. <laughs> That's the human spirit. <laughs> we can always get better. We can always yeah. get flexi- more flexible with things. No, it makes total sense. And I love that you are like really emphasizing that um, there's just no one size fits all kind of mm-hmm. model. Like we really have to think about our own individual needs and the function of our behavior and what kind of environments we're trying to work in and what kind of work we're trying to produce. And I think that that's always really important to keep in mind, but it's mm-hmm. just really individual. Let's slide a little bit away from like the organization of space into Mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about nature and like the benefits that nature can bring us if we spend time out in nature. Now I am more of an indoor pet kind of a gal. Mm -hmm. 
But I will have to say that lately some of my work has been taking me to both Norway and Finland, and mm -hmm. they have like incredible outdoor education programs that I've been able to witness and even take part of um, when I visit there. And I do have to say, it is really transformational to mm -hmm. like see this happen, to mm -hmm. see people learning and in the outdoors and to see what kind of like, actually like sometimes they're in the outdoors and they're like kind of, you know, high energy and they're really mm -hmm. kind of going all over the place, but then like what kind of peace that can actually bring them at the, you know, back end of that experience as well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, when you are working with people, do you ever suggest like leaning more into spending more time outdoors or what in what kind of maybe, maybe is that helpful? Is there enough research to support that that's a really, that's a big benefit? Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> very much so. And, and, um, you know, if you, if you truly think about it, um, we actually come from the outdoors. You know, if, yeah. if you think of like our remote, super remote genetics, we are pre-wired to actually come from the outdoors. Um, and there's something, and I'm sure all of us can attest to this, is there's something very grounding, you know, of being um, in the outdoors. Um, and you just think of like, what is, what is grounding? It's kind of like helps to anchor us in the present moment. A lot of times our brain is not naturally hardwired to, to be centered like that because of just like the busyness of things that go on. We got these things called our frontal lobes that are constantly thinking about the future or kind of reprocessing things from the past. So this idea that the outdoors provides a lot of sensory feedback to us in terms of the novel and unique things that we see, the novel and unique things that we can yeah. feel and, and hear and even smell or, you know, provide that's not poisonous taste, you know, so yeah. it really maximizes our, our senses and there's great treatment um, outcomes from uh, mindfulness and acceptance-based, you know, research that um, having these grounding exercises that are super portable that really utilize our senses can be extremely helpful. And then you put it in a natural and environment, the novelty, and then this is kind of ironic, the novelty of being back in nature just really can help ground ourselves. Um, now, we can interrupt or interfere with that experience. So I, you know, go into, you know, go on a hike in the woods, and I'm like connected yes. to my phone. It's like, how helpful is that going to be? So it's going to cause, you know, some interference there. So there's this, these kind of almost seemingly as our society has developed to become progressively more technical or progressively more like we have to be on seemingly all the time, mm -hmm. then it is quite an experience when people actually can give themselves like a fair experiment to say, you know what, I'm going to, you know, turn off the phone or I'm just going to leave it. I'm not even going to bring it with me and allow ourselves to go through the experience of it. Just how naturally it just kind of like slows down, you know, slows that sympathetic down. nervous system. Exactly. And, and a lot of times that people give themselves that opportunity, 
that could be a very profound learning experience. And that can turn into something that then like you think of like a behavioral prescription, uh-huh. you know, we may, may not be able to be in, in the, uh, in, in the fjords of, of Norway, you know, all the time. I mean. um, it'd be <laughs> like a sweet deal, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, right. But how can we approximate that? Even if it's just like a little yeah. bit of a dosing, either in a given day or in a given week, that can help center us. Um, yeah. So that's an extremely important thing. But it's a but it it's a it's a great you know way that we're looking at how the environment um, can play a role in helping to settle us at at multiple levels. But also the, how the reverse can be true, how the environment can be built or create so much clutter or so much sensory input that it's actually hard for us to be able to settle down. So the environment natural environment is a huge, huge plus from a mental health perspective. And isn't it interesting that, you know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is we, we like, we know this, right? Like we know that going out in nature and, and disconnecting to our phones and social media and the immediacy of people like just needing us like all the time is just so overwhelming. And but it's still so hard for us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, when we come home, it's like the last thing I always say to myself, like, oh, my God, I don't want to go for a walk tonight. But then, of course, as soon as I do it and mm-hmm. as soon as I get back, then I am so happy that I did it and it feels so good. I just always think it's fascinating that even then when we know how good something is for us and we feel good after mm-hmm. we do it, it's still so hard to do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good thing is you're human um, and behavior change can be hard and sustaining behavior Mm -hmm. change can be hard. So we kind of think about it. Hey, with all of us, Mm -hmm. exercise more, eat better, sleep better. Yeah. I mean, all of us (laughs) would be doing better. Be, you know, go out for a walk, get into nature more without a doubt. Um, But it's also like appreciating that, um, uh, again, changing behaviors can can be hard. Um, And sometimes there are, we get through or we get into different times in our life where it's more challenging to do those things. But it is really good, you know, when, um, when you highlight there, Carrie, when we actually do something um, and it makes us feel good, to actually like jot that down, write that down, ah. that when I, um, when I do this, it makes me feel better. Um, so it can help as our own kind of bit of a motivational thing. And sometimes there are other things that we can build in that can be, that can help facilitate that. Like, again, we're social animals, you know, so oh, making yeah. ourselves a little bit more accountable. So like having a walking buddy or other things like that as well too. So we can kind of lean on each yeah. other you know, to be able to kind of help us out with doing those things. Um, but sometimes, again, internally, we can feel, ah, I know if I do it, but I'm like so tired. But sometimes getting it on literally on this side of our eyeballs that we're looking at right. it and it's in our own words that, okay, I know if I just push myself initially, it's kind of going to suck or it's going to be a little <laughs> hard to kind of get going. But then once I get going and actually makes me feel better rather than worse. So sometimes just writing out just a little brief statement like that of what actually happens when I do it, we kind of look on it on the side of our eyeballs and that can actually help us sometimes give us that little extra nudge uh, that can help us get connected with um, something that can actually really help us out because oftentimes, you know, that's sometimes the least things that we do. We spend all of our time taking care of everybody else, but kind of taking care of ourselves 
part of the human condition. We kind of leave that for last. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a really great strategy that you just shared with us. And I can see people using that strategy in multiple ways, actually, and even teaching it to students. I think that that's, it's just very doable to, to be able to write that out and look at it and, and make better choices for ourselves for sure. And, I'm definitely and you already disclosed you've got a chalkboard in your house so you can like I chalkboard do. it on there. I do. I <laughs> love my chalkboard. It actually came out of the old chemistry building here at the university of Iowa when they were doing All a remodel. Right. So it's one of those really big, huge boards. I love it <clears throat> so much. Sometimes my boys draw inappropriate things on the chalkboard, but <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Fostering creativity. <laughs> and it I sounds am. like you can use a little bit of unpredictability and uncontrollability <laughs> in your life just to kind of build some of that flexibility in there. Yeah, maybe this, maybe it's my children that have made me maybe this way. Gosh, darn it. Okay. Um, Okay, so, uh, oh, I was, well, no, I think you kind of already talked about that. We were, I was going to ask, ask you a specific question about is there a difference between urban surroundings and natural mm -hmm. surroundings, which, yeah. you know, there's, I know that I've read a couple articles about this, about like, do you need to go into a space that's like 100% natural, like, you know, the woods, or mm -hmm. is walking around in an urban setting, can that be just as grounding to somebody? Yeah, and actually, that's a, uh, I think, a, a really good point for us to just briefly touch on, because mm -hmm. this concept of, of grounding that, that we talked about actually can be used anytime, anywhere. And then we also think about individual differences as well, too. Some people going into a natural environment um, may not always be the best fit for them. It may not necessarily be as interesting for them, or like, let's just maybe say they struggle with allergies or, mm -hmm. and and I actually help people, you know, with this, what if they're like an insect phobia, you yeah. know, so they're like on guard the whole time and they do well in the concrete jungle, so to speak. Um, so once again, it, it, it like really speaks to the individual differences because beauty can be found in almost any environment. Um, but we also want to look at um, this person environment fit. Um, and again, as we transition with different environments, how can it operate? So for somebody where it's like, you know what, for me, I just like being in the big city. I like the the kind of the stimulation and the noise and the sounds of the sirens going on in the background. For some people, that may be like, oh, that's the worst mm -hmm. thing. I don't want that. And then for other people, it's like, I miss that. And, and it just kind of like can have this these cues or triggers, these sensory things, um, even though it may sound busy or cluttering to other people, for other people it can kind of be settling. So that's where it's always really important as we get back to the role of the individual and the same kind of skill, like the same kind of skill of doing a mindfulness grounding exercise we could do it in the busiest of busiest environments and the most quietest and natural of environments as well, too. It just depends on, does it work for that individual? Oh my gosh. I think that is so interesting. I'm so happy you came on tonight. Well, it certainly beats saying, you know what? That's really boring. That's not interesting at all. So <laughs> make for an excruciating podcast. Eh? No, I've always really wondered about that. Yeah. I've always really wondered, you know, when people will say like, I'm going to, yeah, I have some friends who live in Chicago and mm -hmm. a friend who lives in New York and they'll say like, Oh, I went for a long walk and now I feel better. And I think to myself, well, I know where you live yep. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty chaotic, yep. but like for them, it, it's just, maybe it's not. <clears throat> yeah. And there's, and, and there is like, once again, there's 
flexibility and adaptability and that's uh, once again it's like an important thing of just being human that you know we are built to adapt to our environment mm-hmm. and again some folks able to adapt easier than others um but yeah it was, it was you know i was just thinking about this like even in my own transition from you know vancouver british columbia i love the city and i love the the lights like a horrible sleeping environment like i'd always have you know the city lights my wife and i would have coffee at like 11 o'clock at night because there's like starbucks everywhere um and that's just kind of what we did and then when we moved to fayetteville arkansas for graduate school it, it was funny for the first while it was too quiet i bet it was like too quiet and it was we had a hard time sleeping because our body and our brain was not used to those kind of cues or in essence, lack thereof. Um, So because graduate school is four years, we were marinating in that. So we we adapted, you know, to it over time. Um, So we've got like a little bit of our flexibility kind of came into there, but, but I think that's also an important thing, whether we find ourselves in life um, just, you know, we can be nomadic and we end up in, in different areas. Mm-hmm. That's also part of the human spirit is that we can adapt and accommodate, you know, two yeah. things over time. But it's always important to do that, you know, kind of self-reflection and gut check uh-huh. in terms of what are the environments for me that are a good fit for me? What are things that are facilitators? What are things that do help me stay more grounded? Yeah, that's, I'm sure that was quite an adjustment for you when you moved for you and your Yeah, wife. it wasn't just the humidity. It wasn't just the humidity. <laughs> I don't think I ever adjusted or adapted to that. <laughs> so there's limits to the human condition, I guess. It was every single part of the environment. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay, we are going to get into a little bit of a topic now that I think um, is very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um right now and particularly in the United States and it's really around safety. Mm -hmm. And I have to say before we start talking about it, that um, this is such a triggering word for people right now. It's Mm -hmm. just such a loaded word. Like what Mm -hmm. is safety? What does safety mean? You know, is, is safety, why do you think that this is safe more? Why this person is safe and this person isn't safe. And so I know I want to recognize that there are, bias in the way that we think about safety. Uh Sometimes Uh there are cultural differences. um, There are differences that go along with life experiences. So Uh I, I want to like, make sure that we also when we're talking about safety, Uh that we're recognizing that we recognize that it's a complex issue and word Uh when we're talking about it. But Particularly right now, when we look at survey data, like through our NEA, our state education agencies, when we look at survey data um, through our center, and we're having teachers um, report that one of the reasons why they're leaving the profession is because a feeling of um, a feeling that they're not safe, right. physically and emotionally. So right. they indicate both to us: they're mm-hmm. not emotionally safe, they're not physically safe. So describe to us a little bit about what that means in a person's environment. So when you feel like you're walking into a situation where you're like either physically safe or emotionally unsafe, Mm -hmm. what does that do to your body? Right, right. So I, I want to back up for a second and, and just, yeah. you know, acknowledge exactly what you brought up, Carrie, which is, I think, a really important thing. Because, you know, we think of like originally safety just felt like a very physical, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all it is. And then just as uh, safety 
in and of itself is an alive concept and it's an evolving concept. So when you mm-hmm. think about emotional safety or psychological safety and, and other things like that, that's been expanding, you know, over time. Um, and, and then another layer uh, that's important that, that you brought up is it's also subjective, right? So this is where, you know, what one person may view as being a safe environment, another person very legitimately looking at the exact same thing and being in the exact same environment may feel like they're walking on a minefield. Um, And that's why, you know, when we come back to, as you say, you know, differences in our own backgrounds and our learned experience that kind of shape perceptions of of safety and, and, and lack thereof, or once again, really important when we understand the individual. So um, remember uh, earlier we were talking about being in, in nature. And mm-hmm. one one of the things that's really uh, about nature is that it's really unique and can be really novel and it holds our attention. And our brain is naturally hardwired for two things. One is novelty. We Our brain likes new and different stuff and it captures our attention, things that kind of stand out. Um, but secondly, it's threat. Um, so sure. we're naturally hardwired for threat and it's, it's very adaptive, you know, and that's really important that, that we have this as part of us. It's a survival mechanism. Um, but we're very hardwired to threat and it impacts our information processing. And again, this is like not even thinking about it. It Im- impacts our information processing in three ways. One, our attentional biases. We are just like hypervigilant to threat in our environment. Um, so if you take like a, an example of somebody who's a spider phobic, it's remarkable how they can detect a spider that's 25 yards behind them up on the wall. <laughs> you know, just that it, yes. attentional bias. Mm-hmm. Then there's memory biases. So once the threat detection system goes off, we're not only responding or reacting to that in the moment, but all other memories that are similar to that situation come up right away. And this is just exactly what emotions do. They bring up these memories, so the memory biases. And then third and final are what are called interpretive biases, that we're much more likely when we're facing uncertainty, that we're much more likely to interpret something as being threatening, even if it if it's neutral or it could be looked at at other ways. So these interpretive biases come into play. So we get back to our um, example of the spider phobic. If there's a crumpled up, you know, piece of thread, uh, you know, yeah. on the floor, a spider phobic may like instantaneously it's like that's a spider it's like well maybe it is maybe it's not let me go check it out you know so that tendency to um, interpret things as being more threatening is really impacted by it so we think of like at the raw neurobiologic level the threat detection center of our brain gets activated and that's the amygdala it's a it's a you know it's a primal part of our brain again super protective you know of us and we want it to be reactive um but actually kind of what happens over time with um, experiences and other things is sometimes that threat detection system um, can almost become miswired in some ways. So in one way it can get miswired is that when the alarm goes off, it goes off too loudly. So we feel like we're having a panic attack. Literally our heart is pounding out of our chest. We're like so on edge, it's hard to settle down. Um, sometimes when the alarm goes off, it goes off too long. It just uh-huh. we can't settle ourselves down once we get triggered. And then sometimes it's a false alarm that we may be in an objectively safe environment, yet we're experiencing it as being unsafe. So this is why, like, when we're looking at um, 
what's safe, what's not safe. There's a lot of these other factors that kind of come into play. The last thing that I want to highlight too, and, and you know, when you give this like really unfortunate example, and I see this a lot clinically as well too, that people they're really genuinely dedicated, you know, to their profession. So we take our educators, they are just such an important part of our fabric. And and there's absolutely zero question they are underappreciated and underpaid for the absolute core mission that they you know provide you know to to um educating our our, our population the folks are leaving this yeah. which can just be gut-wrenching because of like perceptions of of safety and the changes mm-hmm. in dynamic um so we we think of for good or for bad media has played a huge role yeah. you know in this is that we are inundated um with threat and remember we're naturally hardwired for threat and threat sells you know kind of captures our attention so really sadly when we're hearing about all the violence that's been going on in schools objectively that has increased over time but also the coverage of that has increased exponentially you know over time so it is like right there so we're kind of caught up in this um current socio-cultural trap in many ways where the threat always follows us we're marinating in it you know sometimes yeah. and that has a wear and tear on a person's physical self it has a wear and tear on them psychologically and emotionally as well too and when we get back into the space of predictability and controllability and especially i think with our educators who have been in the field for like a long time. They've been in the field for, you know, a, a couple or maybe even a handful of decades. They've seen this evolution, yeah. you know, over time of of what they used to think threatening 30 years ago is like nothing in comparison uh-huh. to what it may be now or the types of things maybe they used to deal with 30 years ago are nowhere close to the types of things they're having to deal with now. And we also think about um, like uh, one of the the scariest, far and away the most scariest thing are active shooters. Yeah. Um, that just think about what's what's happened now. The schools and you know teachers and and staff and students are being trained in active shooter drills. Mm-hmm. Like remember the day um, when we the drills that we did were fire drills. Yeah. You know, uh, and and now doing active shooters, that's a very different level, you know, psychologically to people to go through. And we're always trying to find this balance of what are reasonable precautions that we need to work with. But I think this is realistically, these have been some pretty significant sociocultural changes that have happened over time that have really changed the dynamic of the perception of threat in our most important institutions, which are our schools. Yeah. I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's not that we don't want coverage. We of course want coverage of these events. It's important. And also like the constant coverage is, is not always really great for us in terms of our health. Yeah. I mean, I think back to even like nine 11, I can remember Mm -hmm. I had just had a baby And July and then 9-11 happened obviously in September. And 
I was actually living in Portland, Oregon at the time, but what you were saying was just like taking me back to that moment, that memory mm -hmm. piece, because you just, it's like, I couldn't stop watching it, you know, it was right. just like on repeat. But then I got to the point where I was, there's a world trade center in Portland too. And we were right living right downtown right. Portland, Oregon. And I was like, I can't walk him anywhere near there. Mm -hmm. Then remember, remember like the anthrax, like yep. in, the, in the mail. Then I was like, I can't go to the post office. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started having these like really irrational fears about it, but mostly it was because I was just consuming it like 24 seven. I was home with this infant. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I just consumed it. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of an unintended, you know, thing that, that happens in, in many ways. So we take a bit of a step back and, and remember, you know, how news used to come. Well, you would have to wait till the paper showed up at the end of the day or six o'clock news. And very rarely, all of a sudden breaking news would come on and that would be like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Let's but go now on. the news is ubiquitous, uh, like not only with TV, but with our tablets, with our phones that basically uh -huh. follow us wherever we go. We're always plugged in. And then it's almost like rare that we don't see news that has breaking news, red banner, you know, all over always. it. But, but again, that there's always this balance. So remember threat and novelty. So when something like nine 11 happens, yeah. that is the worst of both worlds right there. It is ultra threatening and ultra novel. So it totally captures us. And then to a certain extent, it's good to know and sure. to be aware of what's going on. But just like how we were talking about some other things earlier today, at what point does it become too much of a good thing? At yeah. what point do we really kind of get drawn into it? And, you know, at the time when the pandemic, you know, um, really hit, there was also, remember, there, and still is the case, there socio-political unrest, racial yeah. tensions kind of going on. And all of this was happening at a, at a time where there was just so much uncertainty that was going on. And it's, again, it's that balance between it's good to be informed and it's good mm -hmm. to, to be connected up to a certain point. And at what point is it starting to have a toxic influence, literally a toxic yeah. influence on us, where both neurobiologically and psychologically and behaviorally, um, it's maybe starting to create some problematic changes for us. Yeah. It's, a, it's that thing, you know, especially with our phones, you know, mm -hmm. really monitoring our use and, and how much time we're tuned in to that device. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is, it just seems to be more and more and more of a challenge all the time. Right. It's something we're definitely going to have to really, really get a handle on, I think, over the, these next few years, that's for sure, particularly phone usage in schools. I think yeah. that's going to be continue to be something that we um, and how that manipulates and changes our environment um, will be something we continue to talk about. Um, okay, so let's do one final question here. <clears throat> if you were going to give some recommendations to a school or to school administrators or to teachers in terms of creating healthy environments for themselves, what piece of advice would you give them? Mm -hmm. Well, we could probably go on for an hour. <laughs> you know, with some well, I'm, the, of, I'm the best one. <laughs> yeah. So the best ones. Yeah. We'll, we'll get rid of the useless ones as well too. Um, <laughs> I think, just except for one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll save the worst answer for last day. Eh? Um, but um, 
But, you know, again, I, I know it, it sounds like a bit of a broken record, but it, it's going to be pretty idiosyncratic, you know, to, to these places. But I think, you know, some some important like broad, you know, take homes. Um, one is um, the, the reasonable precautions, you know, type of approach. Um, and I think that this is like important that um, time only moves in one direction and and things change and things evolve. Um, and as we've talked about, you know, today, um, th objective threats, you know, do change and evolve as do our subjective interpretation and response to those yeah. threats change. So there's always going to be like some place for what are reasonable precautions that we need to take, um, and and that's why you know when we talk about the evolution of fire drills to now active shooter drills, um, there's some reasonable precautions that come into play. Secondly, it's also like reminding ourselves is that even these absolutely horrific things that that happen, um, that they are still of the absolute lowest probability. So we think of that there's this pyramid of um, catastrophe and probability. And at the top end of the, the pyramid is the worst case catastrophe. At the bottom end of the pyramid over here is like boring things. And then on the side of probability, the top end is the lowest probability and the wide bottom end is the most likely. So most things in life fall in this pyramid that yeah. the, that, you know, driving from point A to point B, it's going to be boring. I'm going to get there. The most likely outcome is the most boring outcome. And sure. then the further we go up the pyramid, the more catastrophic or worst case scenario the outcome is, but also it's the least likely thing to happen. Sure. So it's, it's really important that we remind ourselves, and we actually have to be pretty deliberate with this, is that these worst case scenarios, while they can still happen, so never going to deny that they can't happen, they, we have to remind ourselves they are also the least likely things to happen as well, too. So we, it's kind of like w reworking that threat detection system. Um, and, and I know there's some wisdom and prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Yeah. Um, but once again, that can be taken sometimes to an extreme that sensitizes you know, folks to this. The third thing, and the last thing that I'll, that I'll kind of mention is really good kind of overarching, you know, um, things. And I want to talk about this from a, a school, you know, administrative, you know, standpoint is making sure that there are um, resources, uh, time that's actually built into um things that help people decompress or that create a sense of community, that create a sense of good um, and that sense of engagement. Um, because I think, you know, and this has been, I think, a really big lesson learned over the course of the pandemic that over the pandemic, you know, um, healthcare places like Mayo has been said, hey, you need to exercise better and, and be resilient and sleep more and do this, that, and the other. That takes work. And, yeah. and we want to avoid blaming the victim here. We have to look at how the system um, can work to create space, to dedicate time, um, dedicate curriculum, which I know is, is like that's valuable. You know, time is, is mm -hmm. valuable, but dedicate legitimate time, space, and resource to these things that that can lead to some decompression, that can 
you know, build that sense of community that can have that sense of, of goodwill, because that's our nature as well, too. We yeah. just have to work harder, you know, for it. And that's a reality. You know, when we talk about the brain is naturally hardwired for novelty and, and threat, we do have to work harder to focus in on what's going well, or we do have to work harder in cultivating those other <laughs> things. And the environment, again, can play a role in helping to facilitate that rather than putting that on the backs of uh, teachers, find a way you got to do it or yeah. students make sure you're practicing resiliency and we'll see you tomorrow, you know, kind of thing. We got to, mm-hmm. it's got to be part of our culture and part of the fabric or part of the curriculum, because if we value it much like how we would with science or math or, or English, um, when we value it and and we really put the time and the effort behind those values, then we're actually building resiliency. Then we're actually looking at the role, the important role that uh, an environment or a system can make and truly investing in that. Oh my gosh. Like the, I am literally going to play what you just said on repeat in over and over and over again, because I've been preaching this too for so, so long and terms of creating systems of wellness that really support the health and the well-being of our teachers and our students. And, you know, I think we've gotten into this trap of more, 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 more so that we can like catch up on learning loss and we can get ahead of the game in terms of, you know, um, reading goals and math goals. And and we just keep adding and we have to collect more data about Um, you know, all of our students in various ways and families in various ways. And we just keep adding more and more and more when in actuality, you know, I go back to, I was raised in a sports family. My dad Mm -hmm. was a track coach and an athletic director and cross country coach. And there, there is such thing as overtraining, right? You go, you get to a point where you're training too much and you're doing the wrong types of training and you, and your performance is going to plummet. And I feel like that is where we're at in our education system right now, that we just keep adding more and more and more. And what we actually need to do is the exact opposite of that. We need to have, we need to have less academic time. Mm -hmm. We need to have more structure time or space where we are doing exactly what you just said. We're coming together as a community. We're doing mindfulness practices together. We're doing play, Mm -hmm. play play-based education. I think we would see we're going to we would see way better results if we did if we had flexible schedules if we took out some of these uh, the tests that were required to do our kids are being worked to death and mm-hmm. so are educators and we're overtraining yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's an excellent analogy that, that you gave. And it kind of harkens back to a couple of things that we've talked about today. At what point is it too much of a good thing? Like, it totally mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, we want our kids to be successful. We want to, you know, really get in and help train up the brain and give them the knowledge mm-hmm. and the tools that are helpful. But at what point does it become too much of a good thing? And then there's another kind of wisdom that sometimes less is more. Um, and, but, but, I put an asterisk with that because when we say less is more, we don't want to like downplay like playtime. That's right. useless or that, um, you know, building in flexibility and schedules or other kind of curriculum thing. We're not trying to look at it. It's less than sure. these other things. But what you're saying is it helps to balance out. Mm-hmm. And we also think of brain health as well, too. All these other things like 
say creativity or building a sense of community or other things like that to help to strengthen up other parts of the brain. And especially when we're young, you know, you get to an age like me and your brain starts to slow down um, that when we're young, we're really plastic. We've got a lot of that flexibility. And actually there's a lot to be said about how we can cultivate brain health in our folks. When we do have a little bit more of a balance or a salad bar, it can actually help, as you say, actually be more efficient with taking in, you know, the more academic, you know, parts of our learning. It really can. So it's always this balancing act and it's a moving target and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of systems, things in play, but hey, doesn't that give us something to do, you know, to try to work it out? Yeah. Well, you know what? We could maybe solve all the world's problems together <laughs> if we continue this podcast. We, we, we hit 1,336 of them today. So we did yeah, pretty good. We did. we did a really good job. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us um, this evening. It was really a pleasure to spend this time with you and get to talk to you and share some of your wisdom with all of all of our educators who listen to this podcast. So thank you, Craig. I really mean it. Great. Well, thank you again so much for having me this evening, Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bye, everyone. We'll hope to see you next May. um, Or I guess that's just next month. Sorry about that. So in May, we will be having an organization join us called Breathe for Change. And they do uh, mindfulness and yoga and social emotional behavioral health uh, training for specifically for educators. So we're going to have them on and we're going to pick their brains about the different things that we can do through our summer months to restore and rejuvenate ourselves um, before we head into the academic season of 2023-2024. So I hope to see you next month. Good night, everyone. Mm-hmm.